Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of... Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics! Indeed, and today we have a special guest. We have two special guests. Uh, we have Kara, say hello. Hi. And Molly, say hello. Hello. I'm sorry, I, I just love... Today we have a special guest. Two special guests. <laughs> I'm guessing that since I was the second one introduced, I'm the one he forgot about. No, you're not. You're the one who I planned. Kara's the one we came on. It's fine. Everyone's here. And, no and he's just surprised forgot. I'm still here. Uh, once again, once again, we're living the truth that I was not planned. So. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Uh, anyway, so family histories aside. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to be talking about. Um, we're not going to have a new segment because there's nothing news really happening outside of the Oscars, and we all know how I feel about that. So we're not going to be talking about them. Yeah, it's a bunch of people loudly announced that uh, their their uh, for your consideration campaigns were successful. Yes, <laughs> pretty much. Is that uh, why the unfavorite got so many nominations when it wasn't that great? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen the they, favorite, so I don't know. It's weird that they nominated Crash for Best Picture in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, I'm done now. Okay. <laughs> So we're going to be talking about today's episode, the male gaze, and then the next episode we have for later this month will be the, we'll be talking more specifically about the female gaze. Uh, but starting off, we're going to try to get a hold of what exactly the male gaze is. Yes, yeah, so I just a, want to go around and see what everyone has, well, like what the definition for them male gaze means. It is a, a two part spectacular, a fistful of gazes. I don't and know about all that, but I... Right. happiness. <laughs> Molly, you want to go first? Huh? Uh, you yeah, go Molly, first? do you, do you want to lead us off with your uh, how you define the male gaze? Oh, sure, sorry. Um, basically, it's just how a work of media, typically film, is most, where it's most obvious, uh, just... Uh, how it depicts uh, other people, both uh, men and women, from the perspective of the uh, usually the director and the writer, sometimes cinematographer, too. Kara? Kara? I would posit the male gaze as being more specifically that it assumes... I'm going to mess this up. I would say that the male gaze assumes that the viewer is always straight and always male and views everything through sort of that lens. So it's the way that it frames bodies, the way that the camera looks. Usually it's the camera, so it's going to be in film, obviously, but looks and talks about certain people. Usually those people are going to be women. How are we going to mess that up? Uh, because I have a, I, uh, I say, uh, too much, which is weird because I normally talk on the phone at my job, but. That's fine. I say, uh, all the time. All right. <laughs> it's just like, it's going to be an opinion. I don't know how you're going to mess this up, but all right. Um. <laughs> it's, it's a teapot. That's the interesting thing about the male gaze. It's clearly a teapot. Right. You were I both on the answer was connected. All right. <laughs> So basically what the consensus is, because I, I believe that is on the same page, like the male gaze is how the story is told and who the intended audience is. Or assumed to be. 
assumed to be. The framework of the storytelling mechanism and who is going to be who we are meant to relate to in the story and who is aimed at the audience to be like, this is for you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I would not disagree. Awesome. No. So, do you, any one of you have, like, does anything in your head, like, just pop out like, as a specific example of a male gaze that you've noticed? Um, yeah, <laughs> actually, if that's okay. like, something up. So um, we can think of, like, examples of, like, camera framing, but I think a really great example is the old noirs. The broad walked into my room, and I looked at her. She was blonde and beautiful. Her legs went on for miles, but her eyes looked sad. And they describe the woman that we're all seeing, and the per- like the narrator who we're supposed to empathize with describes her to us, usually first describing her body. Right. And it's so interesting that that's what happens. Well, especially, know, that's a really good example of it. Well, especially since in those, especially like in uh, literary noirs, the male character, the male narrator is almost never described. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Molly, what about you? Um, well, I, I, I'm thinking off the top of my head, because I just rewatched it, um, Justice League, uh, how it handles the Amazons and uh, Wonder Woman, like, and, uh, because we see the same Amazons in both Wonder Woman with the female director and in uh, Justice League that had two male directors. I I don't know which one handled the Amazon scenes. And Snyder. (laughs) Actually, no, I think it's Joss Whedon, but let let Molly finish and I'll get back to that. He has failed me, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, but so just what I'm thinking is that like, uh, the Amazons, we see the same set of Amazons in both movies, but the, uh, ones in Wonder Woman are wearing practical armor and the ones in Justice League are not like, let's say, uh, Xena warrior princess armor. (laughs) I, I feel like Xena was covering more. Probably. Xena was practical to some extent. And, uh, comparatively to what the Justice League women were wearing. I will say in the vaguest, vaguest defense that Justice League Amazon armor is clearly trying to show off muscles, but it's showing off a lot of more skin than it should in the process. Well, this is what I wanted to touch on because you bring up a really good point because Joss Whedon said he didn't view it as sexist because he was trying to show a quote-unquote strong woman. And he wanted to show the beauty of strong, muscular women. And I think this goes to the point of even when the male gaze is trying to complement, say, the, a woman character, he's still viewing them as objects. Yeah. Yeah, sort of a, a reflexive objectification, sort of despite or beyond even what it say, says it's intending to, to do. Right. Yeah, it's it's the attempt of trying to like. I understand what he's trying to do, and what the idea is a good idea. The fact is, he's still a dude, and it still comes off as, "How do they bend over? That seems like it would be stabbing you in the abs." Why? (laughs) (laughs) I have a a little bit of a rule where someone is like, "Is this sort of male gazey? Is this outfit kind of sexist?" And if I look at that outfit and I think, "Man, 
she had to get in a real close shave somewhere really personal, <laughs> then maybe we want to reconsider that outfit. Right. Mine was more is a little less strange. It's if she's clearly had to dislocate something to wear that, then we got a problem. Or to get in that pose. Well, yeah, because you're, you're talking about how they are how they are positioned as opposed to where, like in Wonder Woman, they are allowed to move in actual fighting ways, whereas in Justice League, they seem almost positioned like models. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that pops in my head, uh, since I always have to go to, to comic book things, is um, the the sort of the way that that uh, women characters tend to be framed on the covers. And this has been lampooned a lot of times. I remember, I don't remember the title off the top of my head, but there used to be a blog that would take comic book covers that showed, you know, women characters in sexy poses and then draw men in those poses to, to sort of highlight how inherently sexualized all of, like these characters are, are posed and the, in the way that that's not usually examined. Uh, and I always thought that was uh, a funny and B insightful. The Hawkeye initiative that, yeah, that was it. Hawkeye <laughs> initiative. Thank you. My favorites for like bad comic stuff is when you have a guy who's clearly never like actually looked at women's clothing. <laughs> and so and there seems, and like he wants to frame all of the breasts, so you can clearly <laughs> see all the sides of them. As I call it, I've heard it called the boob sock. Like he <laughs> thinks that clothing has slots that breasts go into. Yeah, like some the 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 clothing behaves as more like body paint than clothing. Exactly. Yeah, or like. There's a slots like gloves or mittens, but for boobs. Uh, the old Catwoman, the Catwoman purple jumpsuit, where jumpsuit, jumpsuit, where her boobs are like independent units. Yes. I've I've spent longer than I want to admit just looking at that and being like, but how? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this uh, goes into the doombot the whole time. This is badly made one. This and this, well, what this really sort of speaks to is how, with the male gaze, unintentionally or, or intentionally, we sort of subconsciously don't even take the woman's life into effect when they designed the character, the outfit, or the idea of what the character might be or stand for. It is merely for a visual purpose. Whereas the male characters are, there's no end of debate and discussion about outfit, why they dress like this, what they stand for, and all this. Whereas the woman, as you guys said, boob pockets. <laughs> and only yeah. and, and only a sudden size, too. There's only going to be... Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's specific boob pocket restrictions. Uh, right. you, must be, you must be this boob pocket in order to, to exist. There's very or, much a... Sorry, go uh, ahead. You could also have a flat chest, but in that case, you're going to spend all your time wishing you didn't. Yeah. Like loudly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, um, so Cat- Catwoman's sort of my favorite like go-to on this because they're repeatedly emphasized. Like, she's like a gymnast. She's a gymnast. And if you've ever seen a gymnast, you've ever seen, like, um, I'm going to mess up her name, Simone Biles, who is like, five foot no she's less than five feet tall but her thighs are as big around as her head and she's beautifully fit Mm -hmm. but if you look at a gymnast they wear 
essentially like very intense sports bras to basically bind their chest because you don't want things you don't want to lose an eye (laughs) and it's it's so interesting or you see these superhero women wearing heels and i'm saying this as a tall woman who wears heels and i can run in them if i choose to do so but the whole thing is it's just it's just madness and it's not even the way that um a friend of mine is a Batman cosplayer, and he wears this ton of bat armor, and it weighs like 50 pounds, and he just sweats, and it's very difficult. So people are like, oh, like men's costumes are just as impractical. I'm like, his costume looks strong, and it's hot. Right. My costume is physically dangerous, and as someone that did gymnastics as a child, I'm like, I could not do any of these things in this outfit. And it's it's so bizarre and again unfair oh absolutely um there is as a director uh, russ meyer who i've mentioned a couple of times before in this podcast and he did a lot of sort of sexploitation films and russ meyer liked a certain type of woman physically but even within that constraint he did a movie called i think mondo topless and he just followed <laughs> women around as they went shopping for bras and highlighted how having a bigger bust was hard, how it was a strain on your back, how it was hard finding bras, how it was hard shopping for clothes, how it was hard getting people to talk to you, treat you seriously. All things that are completely ignored when you see this stuff in the comics. That is absolutely fascinating. I have not heard of that one before. Like I was, I was actually one of the things I was I was gonna say is a lot of the male gaze is is very much about not asking que- like uh, especially for women not for women characters not asking questions of practicality or reality at all, or uh, and every oh, question right. being about what the presumed man would want, who they would want to be, or who they would want to have. Right. What were you saying, Molly? Oh, I just. Or they bring it up, the practicality, but as a joke. Like, there was a... I forget the specific issue, but there was a one where in Marvel where Spider-Man and Black Cat were hanging out. Mm. And uh, Spider-Man was, like, uh, talking, and he's, he's like... And he said that... Uh, I think it was MJ. It's been a while since I've read the full comic, but it was... Uh, uh, was yelling that uh, Black Cat's breasts were too big to work as a when she, when she's so gymnastic focused and uh, Black Cat just said tell her they work as ballast wow <laughs> oh. that is a person who definitely knows what those words mean <laughs> I- <laughs> Oh my god, editors like, have an important job. I love comic job. books, but man, they're easy to dunk on. <laughs> I think I think one of the fundamental conceits, or like one of the fundamental things of the male gaze is that very, very early you learn to just, as a woman, to stop seeing it or to stop like really thinking about it very hard. Because it's it's never going to change, and it's just... And this is a silly thing and sort of related, but something as simple as like, oh, so like there's a a group of five heroes and then they have the one girl. So I guess when we play heroes at recess, I get to be the one girl. Right. It's just this sort of like constant, either I'm invisible or people like me are invisible or we're not interesting. We're not part of the story. We're never the heroes. We're never at the center. We are 
things. And it, it's a bit weird, especially because as a straight girl, it's very odd to be taught that women are the prizes that you win at the end of the story. That, like, when you go through the journey of self-fulfillment, you get a beautiful woman right. as a hero and being like, man, I don't, I don't think I want beautiful women. We're... <laughs> Like, this is so disappointing. I, I love Batman. I love the 89 Batman movie. And at the end of it, it's always like, yeah, and he gets together with Vicky Vale. And I just remember being like, I really want to be Batman, but I really don't want to date her. <laughs> well, you're it's okay. She'll be replaced by the time the next movie gets here with whoever the next one is. Yeah, and that was a great lesson as a child as well. <laughs> uh, Molly, you are saying? eminently replaceable. Molly? Um, yeah. I was just cracking a joke. Don't worry about it. Okay. Sorry. Um, what was the joke? Uh, I was just saying that as the lesbian, she could have given the woman she won to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I was actually hoping that you would take up that line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... I'm The thing... I'm going to... the As a lesbian... Uh, it reminds me of, and again, this is just an out-of-context thing I saw on uh, Tumblr. Uh, for the That's the first time I saw it. Um, but it's um, Jane Lynch standing in front of a bunch of uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit covers. And being like, as a feminist, this, I find this deeply frustrating. As a lesbian, I find it amazing. <laughs> uh, the duality of lesbian. Right, well... Yeah. Going back to what uh, Kara mentioned about like, the male gaze is one of the things where, like it is so baked into the basic fabric of storytelling. I remember realizing really like what patriarchy meant and what the male gaze was. <laughs> one of the few times like it became crystal clear to me was when I re- re- all of a sudden remembered an old Seinfeld joke about how it was, the joke was bleach uh, tide can get even blood out. I'm thinking if you have blood in your clothes, laundry isn't your biggest problem right now. And what that joke presupposes is periods aren't a thing. That's, yeah. That is pretty correct. Tide would create a laundry detergent that women could use, but that's never even considered as part of the joke. Yeah, because nobody, uh, of the long list of things that the male gaze wants to completely ignore, and it is a long list, <laughs> uh, menstruation is definitely high on that list. Because yeah. uh, presumed yeah. straight male audience don't want to hear it. And that's <laughs> just embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> There's um, uh, the one of the new Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, <laughs> And I get them all mixed up. So it's not the first one where we, with James Franco, it's the sequel to it, where the apes have, like, formed their own little civilization. And there's a small group of humans that go and talk to them. And there's a woman in the group. And she's wearing, this is, like, several years, like, I think, like, seven to ten years after the end of time. The apocalypse has happened. It is end of days. Humans are barely clinging to life. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at her, and she doesn't appear to be wearing anything but, like, movie makeup necessary for cameras which is nice but her face is smooth and she's wearing a tightly fitted t-shirt and fitted jeans and i don't know if a lot of people know this but if you have a fitted t-shirt it begins to sort of disintegrate after a couple years of intense wear especially if you're i don't know washing it with a rock and like (laughs) and i remember looking at her and being like where did you get that shirt and where did you find the tweezers to pluck your mustache (laughs) 
again, I understand this is a movie, and I give other movies, for example, I give um, Mad Max Fury Road. I give that a huge pass on a lot of these things, especially right, because but... they're supposed to be fetishized in right. this way, an examination of that. But it's just it's such a small thing. It's like, why are her clothes still like this? How is this even possible in this time? And I noticed it, and I'm not sure if anyone else was bothered by it. Because everyone else is looking at the amazing... Like, look at these amazing CGI monkeys. We've duplicated the monkey. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, just that that incredibly narrow field of what a woman in a movie is allowed to look like. Right. Uh, Even in in literally apocalyptic circumstances. Uh, Yeah, it is staggering. Yeah, she doesn't have any eyeliner, but she also doesn't have a mustache. And it's not true for everyone, but it's true for a lot of us. And I'm willing to make that sacrifice to come out and say that that's a thing. <laughs> well, this sort of goes into, like, um, the tendency to, to have women characters not even be characters. They tend to be, as I mentioned earlier, objects to represent something. And Kara brought up a point of they also oftentimes given labels like MILF and jailbait. Oh yeah. Oh. Kara, um, did you wanna did you want to re explain your uh, your point we were talking about earlier? What? Uh, which I've gone on a couple rant about this. Uh, I, uh, basically the, the point that I'll I'll introduce your point for you then. Thank you. Uh <laughs> mansplain it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Kara, bef- uh, when we were talking in the run-up to this episode, Kara had talked about how I- if you look at particular fetish terms for women, such as MILF, uh, mother I'd like to F, and uh, and jailbait, is they're very much framed about how the, the user of the term, the presumed straight man, uh, what his desire or interest or interaction with the woman would be. It's nothing about the woman. It's about the what the woman uh it's about the the man's i can't i i don't want to say the effect the woman has on the man because that's not right it's not something the woman is response to the woman yeah it's about the man's response to the woman but also in a particular way that blames the woman for the man's response to the woman like it's a it's a fascinating like toxic reflexive mess it's uh amazing yeah that yeah that's exactly it and it's about that that becomes what she is. She, and, I mean, like, linguistically it makes sense. But like, oh, she is such a milk. She, she is not anything. That is you. And I think that a lot of, um, there, there are a lot of really derogatory terms directed at, at women and sex workers and trans women in sex work and pornog- pornographic work that are fetish terms that they then turn around and act like are words for people. And like that's that's very disturbing. I don't. I can't think of something that works like jailbait or works like milk for men. That's not actually just a reflection of that. So I've heard of like dilf or like uh, Archer made a joke about gilf, but milf came first because that was something that men wanted. And then they're like, oh well, let's just use this term and sort of apply it to other things. But I can't think of a derogatory sexual term that women have for men. Yeah, I, just, I don't know. I got nothing. I don't know. Like I'm, I, I have to be honest. I don't, I don't really consume a lot of porn. I suppose I could go on like Pornhub and try to find like what's the fetish terms that women have for men. But the fact I can't think of anything off the top of my head, just, well, even if they exist, they're not that percolated. Most porn is aimed at men, so I'm doubting you would find much. Well, even even 
like one of the other things when we were, we were having this conversation initially is uh, there are ter- there are popular terms or that are in the same in not not the same in a similar sphere as uh, MILF, for example, but they're not judgmental in the same way. Like if you look at there was this sort of mimetic term about the dad bod, right. but that mm-hmm. was much more about accepting particular types of especially older or and less fit male bodies in a way that was non-judgmental like it was still somewhat sexualized it was it was people a lot of people were like celebrating the fact that those bodies could be seen as sexual which is a thing Uh, and and that's you know that that's positive but again like it's not the same like it's it's a much it's a term that's about like welcoming certain types of bodies that that were are, are not the traditional ideal, whereas MILF is, you know, the, oh, look at this thing that I want. And well, it's usually the MILF is the, is not, oh, hey, that's a woman with a normal 45-year-old giving birth to two or three children body, but it's like, oh, she has kids but looks like a supermodel. It's not celebrating the ordinariness of her kind of body. It's celebrating the extraordinariness of it. Well, I want to yeah. ask Molly a question. Um because the male gaze is so pervasive, I'm guessing it's even sort of infected, like, because there are a lot of, well, we're seeing more and more stories with lesbian romance, but a lot of them are written by men, and it seems like there's a lot of lesbian romance, and I would say, I would guess probably even porn, in the male gaze, still denying agency somehow. Oh, yeah, like, uh, on the porn front, I cannot... Like when I do get hankering, I, I cannot tell you how often you'll be watching porn that's explicitly labeled as lesbian, and then one of two things will happen: either at least one of the girls will have long fake nails, which wow, <laughs> yeah, uh, or else a guy will appear halfway through to for the big finish. The girls get to have the foreplay together. And, but the guy shows up, and the porn will still be labeled lesbian, not bi or threesome. Yeah, like lesbian, lesbian as the the straight male uh, fetish thereof. Yeah, here's yeah. my question: Does the guy even knock, or does he just come in? Because <laughs> they don't like because by the time he he's there for the finale, because men need to be the ones to finish the thing, right. and so. That by by the time he shows up, they've abandoned any story. Oh, Ugh. okay. Hey, yeah, I get all that. Just the Midwesterner came. It's like, how dare he just walk into a room without? A <laughs> this is a civilized. This is a civilized set, good sir. You knock before walking in with your penis. But um, and on the non-porn front, um, <laughs> yes, please, please let us return. <laughs> okay. Um. It, it's less bad, honestly, um, largely because, at least like in movies and television, um, the main thing is going to be uh, camera work uh, for those things. Is when you, like, a um, good example of it not being creepy is the web series Carmilla, right. where, like, when they kiss or whatever, it's just. The camera's just there, in part because of the setup of the show, but uh, and being a webcam. But like, it doesn't feel intrusive or voyeuristic, 
Whereas if girls kiss in a movie or a show, or if it's an R-rated movie, have sex, you can kind of tell by what the camera's focusing on and uh, what the women are focusing on on each other who's behind the camera. And so it can end up with a lot of gross... Like, it, it starts feeling intrusive. And right. it, like, it's, it is very much... These girls are kissing because two girls are kissing is hot. Right. Explo- exploitative versus authenticity. Yes, yes. Well, and I think it's important to just, like, I want to pause it, like, because I'm really sort of shocked by how many people, the modern-day movie-going audience, do not realize the importance of camera placement. (laughs) 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 And, like, the camera does a lot of things just by the way you use it or how it's framing the story. And what you brought up is a very good point of how the camera is framing the shot tells you how you're supposed to be feeling. And sometimes a lot of it is unintentional. Sometimes a lot of it is intentional. Uh, voyeurism is a huge part of film. But also at the same time, there's a way to set the camera to where it's voyeuristic, but it feels objective, or shall I say almost like documentarian. It mm. gives you a feeling of you're being removed, so it doesn't feel like you're peeking in, but like so much as you're watching, if that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah. But, Can I give a good ex- an example I like for that? Go right ahead. Like, uh, we're going back to Wonder Woman and Justice League again. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, both time in both movies, you get the camera gets rather close to uh, Wonder Woman's rear. Um, but in uh, Wonder Woman, it's when she's entering, uh, exiting the trench and climbing up the ladder from into No Man's Land. Right. And so the camera gets really close up on all of her body and like just a series of long shot of close shots. And since that costume is basically a swimsuit, (laughs) you get a good look, but in uh, but because of the context, the way it's framed and how quick it's over and also, and like uh, all these things that you don't, it doesn't feel perverted. It just feels it's a thing they're doing. And, and, Justice League, when uh, Wonder Woman goes to talk to Cyborg and try and recruit him, like, she's in a trench coat, she's in regular clothes, but the camera focuses on her ass as, her rear, sorry, as a long, as a, as some smooth saxophone plays. (laughs) That is, okay, yeah, I noticed that too when I watched Justice League, because they do that once or twice. They do like a sort of behind, they frame her rear either in the corner or just smack dab in the middle. Uh, the yeah. difference between the Wonder Woman shot and the Justice League shot uh, Molly brought up is the Wonder Woman shot you're referring to is an insert shot. That's giving you a visual cue of she's coming out of the trench, so that just gives you like an extra bit of visual information of giving you the feeling of someone leaving. It gives you the motion of like she's standing up and the camera and the shot and all that. Combines to give you the feeling of standing up or climbing out, and also gives a you, kind of a kind of visual momentum, right? And also gives you a sort of like giving your like sometimes we do insert shots of when they throw the gun in Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark into the suitcase, or mm-hmm. it might be um, uh, Last Crusade, but you see a camera shot of the uh, gun going into the suitcase. That's just giving your eye the definitive proof that the gun went into the suitcase. 
Mm. You connect mm-hmm. the dots, but it just wants to give you that little, no, it's in there, so stop worrying about it. The Justice League, what Molly brought up is, that is an intentional look at a butt. Because there's no yeah, real know. reason for it. I also, um, I do want to bring up, uh, Molly actually reminded me of one of my favorite things, and this is when people say, oh, uh, this costume is strong woman. This is what women want to look like. This is the woman power fantasy. Is this look or that body or this body. Right. And there, the, there's a moment in Wonder Woman, and it's when Wonder Woman has stolen the, the blue dress from this other woman, and she walks into the room. And all the times when they say, oh, this is the woman's power fantasy, it's the woman from the front. Right. But it's actually her from the back because she has the sword in the back of her dress and she mm-hmm. reaches behind and she grabs the sword and all of the muscles in her back are like tense and you can mm-hmm. see them in this very low cut dress that opens up her back but covers the rest of her body and all of the focus is on the strength in her back as she pulls out this weapon and it's like yes that is that is my power fantasy like i had a little note like if i want to cosplay wonder woman i gotta work out my core a little more (laughs) (laughs) and like that was it because it wasn't about her boobs or her pose or her face or anything that's so sexualized but this this intense physical strength moment and it's like yeah the woman fantasy is actually not being incredibly sexy it's literally being physically strong right or at least it is for me obviously you know women uh can be different. <laughs> I've been Not told. always. We're usually the same person over and over again by the same person. I mean object, but... As of 2019, science has proven there are at least three different types of woman. Uh, your mom, your sister, and the Call other all three. <laughs> what were you saying, Molly? I said collect all three. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um... But no, that is like, especially if you go back to like classic Hollywood, it becomes this weird thing of, especially people like Hitchcock, the women have, they are less characters and more representation of what they think the ideal woman is. Steinberg, um, it's like a walking tour. It's like a walking tour of directors' neuroses. Right. At the same time, like, if you go far back enough, you get that. And at the same time, they also have something that most women don't have, even nowadays, jobs. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> if you were going to go with Jaws, I was going to go with uh, torpedo-shaped boobs. Right, <laughs> well, <laughs> underwire balls are a hell of a thing. <laughs> and then Madonna came along. All right, um... I'm so sorry I've ruined your podcast. That's okay. Um, okay, if the... you do not know that we ruin it ourselves, then how are you even a listener? Every day. Um, Molly, real quick, because um, while we're on it, I wanted you... You wanted to bring up the difference between objectification and sexualizing right uh i just i had an idea i floated to you jeremiah an example i came up with a better one uh using the same character actually okay um michaela baines yeah and the michael bay transformer movies Mm -hmm. um i would like obviously she's not treated well by the camera and and the direction in either movie. I would argue, so to me, the difference is that sexualization is still gross, but it is emphasizing the um, attractiveness and the beauty of the body, but it is still sexualizing a person. Objectification is turning her into the blow-up doll that moves. Okay. And 
So in trans in the first Transformers, Michaela like the camera's frames were bad, but like Michaela gets angry at being treated in like an object. She talks about how much that sucks. She saved Sam a couple times. She's somehow the only character in this franchise that likes working on cars. Yeah, she, uh, she has like an interior life and seems to be a person. Yeah, she has a back. She's the only one with a backstory. The only human with a backstory. Um, and like, so she does these things. And, yeah, what do you um, mean? Sam has a backstory. His backstory is he has the thing. <laughs> we don't even see him get the thing. He just has the thing. He just has it. <laughs> uh, but in Transformers 2, like, I mean, the very first shot we see is her working on a, a motorcycle and clothing it. You should not wear. I don't work on cars. <laughs> I know you should not be wearing that on a motorcycle. You mean most people don't repair their motorcycle in cutoff jeans with one leg propped up on it? I mean, Pretty, the battery you know? acid alone is dangerous. Uh, Again, this triggers my usual thing. If someone had to shave real deep up in there. <laughs> you know, coveralls would actually be a real good thing to wear while uh, working on a vehicle. That's just a... Yeah. <laughs> and but like she like in the first one she doesn't contribute a whole lot but to be fair neither is anyone who's not a neither <laughs> any human who's not a soldier in that movie no but one contributes at, things just happen she at least like repairs a car so that that bumblebee can stay in the fight like she at least enables the transformer a uh, transformer to keep fighting as compared to to everyone else who's not a soldier who just kind of does stuff and wanders around. And and the second one, her, her contribution is literally there was a thing in her purse. <laughs> she just had a thing. And, oh, I'd, but, I'd forgotten about that. Like she does, she, it's mostly trying to get Shia LaBeouf to say, I love you. And like that is her sole contribution, which is actually kind of hilarious that in the second movie she is after a weird bit at college with the sexy robot. Um, <laughs> she hit, she's pretty fiercely into Shia LaBeouf, but then in the third one she's completely gone. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, She's just they, they literally used a copy paste tool to to make her not there anymore. I just uh-huh. realized something, Thad. Yeah. In our last episode, we told a lie that the, the bumblebee is not the first time the Decepticon's plastic conception. I forgot, as everyone does. Oh yeah, terminate a woman that they had in the second one, and immediately to... dropped the moment she didn't work because God forbid you might have won. Uh, yeah. Oh and. You know what's funny about that at particular thing? Like, that is a pretender, is what that kind of robot is. Right. <laughs> the Decepticons had two of them, of like, uh, in the in the old school stuff, of, uh, <laughs> like, of, uh, like, robots that, like, that look, took on vaguely human, organic forms. Uh, one of them turned into a, sam- a set of samurai armor. <laughs> What? And the other turned into this blue gargoyle thing. Neither of them turned into a lady. That that wasn't a, neither of them even really fit in well. <laughs> uh, but, 
What do you, what do you yeah. mean? Th- those are all things that a man can have. <laughs> Honestly, have the blue gargoyle might have worked better. <laughs> Actually, I have questions about where one gets a blue gargoyle, Thad, because I'm not a man, but I wouldn't mind having one. Uh, oh no! It's a, it's only a the, it's a men only. Sorry, blue gargoyle. Uh, it's yeah. We, we're not allowed to talk about it actually. I've never oh, had one. I, I, really like I want to re- revisit something that Molly brought up. That I don't know if Thad was hinting at this or not. But so, um, something that was really fantastic about the Bumblebee movie. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the main char- her name. I'm terrible Charlie. with name. Charlie. Charlie is that Charlie does go out and work on cars, and she's wearing overalls. And if you look closely, she's actually wearing, like, biker shorts under her overalls. Right. And you can see them peeking out her legs, and they're, like, halfway down her thighs. So it will make sense that she lives in a hot area. She is, like, protecting a good chunk of her leg. And it's such a it's such a simple choice. And I remember seeing it and being so excited by that. And it's... <laughs> It's such a, a a low bar. It's 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 like a little thing, but the difference that it makes in what it means the creators were thinking about is mm-hmm. pretty massive. Yep. Well, um, and I also I, I love that that so the, the scene with Michaela and she's opening up the car and she's the camera is looking at her from like this weird angle and her hands are stretched above her head from the from like, the first movie. Yeah, from the first movie. And she's literally saying with her face, she is saying, I don't like it when men stare at me and think I'm stupid. I like to work on cars, but they get freaked <laughs> out by that and they never listen to me. And Shia LaBeouf is not listening to her and literally <laughs> biting his hand. And the camera is siding with him. Yeah, it's like they're like they're they're having her textually like make that reference as though like sort of drawing awareness to it but the ca- yeah like you say the camera is still 100% treating her like a thing and it's, I, it's almost oh, like sorry. making fun of her go ahead molly what i was going to say i uh, i don't know like the order of production for the first transformer movie i am not convinced that Sam was actually in the script when Michael Bay got a hold of it. <laughs> I am not convinced that it was like Bumblebee with a female lead and Michael Bay just like, heck no, we'll keep her. Or I'm not changing the script. I'm just going to insert the guy and change the camera direction. Because <laughs> like, like, everything about how she's, what she says and how she acts, like, I mean, she's the one who gets to call out Sam. Right. Like, he never does anything about it. He doesn't grow from it, but like she gives him the what the hell hero speech. And like all this happens, like, but the camera has a completely different opinion of her than the script did. Well, this it's is weird. also another thing about barked at, that someone barks at her. Yes. Um it, it's when it, it's the, the creepy government officer guy. Yeah. And he's like she's like seventeen years old, maybe eighteen. Oh. And they're arrested and she says something he's like you shut up and then he barks at her and tells her that she's sexy and I remember in the theater like something inside me shriveling away from (laughs) that moment like that is you've arrested her and you're barking at a teenager and talking about her body and then he showed up later I'm like shouldn't he have been arrested he's treated Uh, like this goofy anti-hero I'm like no he's like a sex criminal 
I want to insert a funny thing about that guy, actually. That's John Turturro's character. Thank you. Uh, yeah. um, he stated in interviews that the inspiration he took when trying to figure out how to behave as that character... Oh, I know this one. <laughs> ...was watching Michael Bay. And so, like, he would watch how Michael Bay treated Megan Fox, and that was how he would treat Megan Fox. This goes oh. to a core of what was even bigger, of how much say... Megan Fox had over her character and how much control she had versus how much control or maybe even support Haley Steiffel had in Bumblebee. Because mm. yeah. you have a script written by a woman, you have a director who very clearly is listening to the women, whereas by all accounts, Michael Bay, whether he knows it or not, is a pig. <laughs> <laughs> I think he knows it, and I don't think he knows that that's a bad thing. Right. Like, it's one of the things where, like, clearly, like, because you bring up a point about how Megan Fox is clearly the main character, and and the other thing about the male gaze is it so thoroughly warps our view of how a story should work that it was a long time before I started realizing I'm watching a movie, and I go, oh my god, the male character is so utterly unnecessary. (laughs) <laughs> it clutters up the story. It makes yeah, more sense for the love as, interest to be the main character. It's taken as so how things are that it just is not questioned. Well, perfect example, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Like, for well, you want to put Guardians to. 2 to happen, you need Peter Quill. Yes, fine. But he doesn't need to be the main character. Like, Nebula, not, not as well Nebula, but Gamora is clearly the one who we should be... She's the daughter of Thanos, i.e. the big bad, four movies from now. She's so much more interesting as well. And it's like, I'm Peter Quill, and I'm kind of sad, and my mom died. And it's like, great, but can we focus on her? Because apparently her mom died. Also, uh, you don't... It's it's weird. The framing of her is interesting. Because if you watch very carefully, you see that she's wearing enormous high heels. Yeah. But they don't draw a lot of attention to them because they're not stilettos. They're usually wedges or boots or shaped. So I'm often very confused by that. I'm like, how tall is Zoe Zaldana, but why is she wearing heels? Like, can't can't a woman just be short? Well, (laughs) uh, technically, no. Um, (laughs) I have never seen... um, It is the weirdest thing in the world. Men must be taller than the women, but the women must be always uh, perceived to be like over five feet. It's it's uh yeah, it's some sort of height supremacy contest. Well, I mentioned in my review for Widows, Elizabeth Debicki is like six foot four, six foot three, and uh, McQueen allows her to be the full height, and she towers over everybody and. Throughout the majority of cinematic history, women have been shrunk to make women to make men feel taller, and it's really odd that like I agree with you like the amount of just why is she in head um, wedges that doesn't make sense. Uh... Is everything okay? Oh, yeah, okay. just sorry, headset issues. Um, no, so <laughs> he's apparently five six and a half, so about. The average height of the American woman. Okay. So she's Wait, the height that's... of a normal woman. Like, wh- 
it it it, do, it does stun you to speechless. Yeah, but but if she was just wearing regular boots, then she wouldn't be wearing heels. And what kind of world <laughs> would that be? <laughs> One where she would be the main character. Um, and we would get to see her awesome sword more often. Why? Sword she, would be neat. She has her hair down for the majority of both films, which I'm always like, fine, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. <laughs> I have. Um, you can't see me because I have a face mount for radio, but I do have ex- I have like waist length hair that's dyed several colors. Right. Uh, the sun, social justice warrior, and I put it away pretty much when I'm trying to do anything because it gets in my face and my mouth, and so it's always odd to me again to see these female characters with very long hair just running around with it just loose. But when she's in prison, they do pull her hair back. And it's such she's a in prison. Point. You have to be humane in prison. <laughs> I think it's the the language, like the um, like because like we use put the hair down is like a like a metaphor for like you know relaxing and being calm and stuff. I think that's what they were going for in putting her hair up in prison. Oh, I assumed it was a defensive her, thing. Yeah, it was her at her most on her guard. Like I. I I'm not saying like it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying I think that was the reasoning behind it, like textually. I was, I was just honestly glad to see it all <laughs> because it's like like it, she treats it like hair. She moves it, she touches it, she pulls it back, and that can actually be very difficult to do if someone's wearing a wig. It's actually mm-hmm. one reason why people don't do that is if you pull sometimes pull back hair in a wig, it looks super weird, right? So I, I like that they did that. It was just such a, a small moment of like real characterization of a real person is like, okay, so I'm pulling my hair back because I'm in a vulnerable environment and I went out of my face. And I'm like, oh, thank you, film. <laughs> well, You're I welcome. Just, I have a theory now about why she has such long hair when she sh- clearly should be keeping it short for practicality's sake. Oh, what's your it's, a, it's a flex on Nebula. That's not not bad. That makes a pretty good idea. Oh, it's so mean. I say that as someone for whom Nebula is my favorite character. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone here loves Nebula. Am I am I mistaken in this? No, no, Nebula's amazing. No, but that's a that's a great bit of headcanon that I'm going (laughs) to deeply take to heart. Like I just. They're on on trips and spaceships together. Nebula's the one driving. Gamora just sits down and just starts combing her hair for no reason. <laughs> um, oh. To get back to what one, uh, one of you guys brought up earlier is the fact that like we have a lot of times this notion of, well, we'll have one woman, so that's equality. Um, Louis Vittel uh, had a tweet, something like, there's a movie that came out a little while ago called First Man, about the Neil Armstrong story. And mm, there's yeah. one woman, played by Claire Foy, and he brought up, like, uh, First Man belongs in the same category as Spotlight. There's one woman, and she's very concerned. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and I love, and I adore Spotlight, but there is, like, there is like normally yeah. you have this weird thing of, we'll have at least one woman, that's enough, and she, her job is to be concerned. Whereas the men are allowed to be reckless, they are allowed to be all manners of things, but the woman's job is to be pensive and concerned. And they just happen to be played by great actresses like Rachel McAdams and Claire Foy. But 
Uh, okay. the basically how how to tell a screenplay is written by someone who they're the only woman they ever spend time around is their mother. Right. <laughs> I mean, no wonder she's concerned. Maybe you should go outside, get a little sun. I don't. Mm, well, there's. Well. Just, there's oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. So there's, there's something that Thad said about that that triggered one of my uh, patented three or four hour long rants that I promised not to go into. Okay. But um, so, I mean, we have the woman as object in the story, like a woman as pretty thing to look at. And we also have woman as reward. You know, y- you have thus completed the adventure here. Have the lovely woman as your prize. Ready, play, along, women in stories, like you said, is to be concerned or sometimes to like ruin the story. It's really weird. So mm-hmm. it's like, um, and the perfect example of this to me is, is Breaking Bad, because people hated Skyler. And that was because we, as the audience, wanted to see the main character uh, make drugs and lose his mind. That's what, we, that's what we were there for. And when he stopped doing that, the story ended, and that we didn't want that. And her role was to try and pull him back from that edge, which sort of makes sense in the sense of the plot like of course your wife is not going to want you to lose your mind and make drugs but in terms (laughs) of the audience that just sets her up as an object to be hated because she's not offering anything that the audience wants to see happen yeah she is the voice of buzzkill and like like so often is like the woman is there uh, to be either motivation because she's murdered and he has to kill people because of it or she's trying to keep him, the main character, from doing the things the audience wants and offers nothing in return. Or she's a prize to be won once he completes the adventure. And it's always great when like women are multiple. So it's like he breaks up with the bad woman who doesn't want him to go on the adventure. And during the course of the adventure, he upgrades to a better woman object, which he then wins at the end. And the other woman is neither seen nor heard from again. <laughs> My, uh... My, or like and like we're we're getting a little bit better over time about the women as prize and women as an object thing but sometimes like i'm thinking of the mario games lately where like peach will almost inevitably get kidnapped but they will and they will have a character usually like a toad or someone uh, be like, oh no, Peter just got kidnapped again. <laughs> don't save her again, <laughs> or like, or just like, not. They won't say hey, the exact joke, but the whole Peach has been kidnapped must be a two a day that ends in Y. It's <laughs> like, okay, Nintendo, you know what you're doing. <laughs> Maybe you know instead of just Maybe you, get you to the next that, step. <laughs> Yeah, like acknowledging that you have a that there is a problem is not the same as fixing the problem. Just admitting that it's that the problem exists is not a mea culpa, and it is not the same as as like wiping away the problem. And you know they sidestep that in other games like Yoshi's Woolly World. Not Peach, no, Peach isn't kidnapped, or um, Yoshi's Island, it's not Peach, or even like a lot of the plot. I'm, I'm going to shamefully admit one of those people that play Mario ga- Mario Party games for the plot. Okay. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but usually um, it's not that Peach has been kidnapped, it's some other MacGuffin. So like they, they have sidestepped it in other games, and you could keep doing that. 
And like, (laughs) and it's weird. Like, I mean, it's kind of helped that they have the two other princesses. Like, Rosalina is some sort of goddess of space. Yeah, you know, space god princess. Yes, and uh, Daisy... Daisy is a is a tomboy badass who can send Bowser flying with a single backhand slap like Team Rocket, and it's just like you okay? Can we can we do something? Like because like um, there is a game uh Mario plus Rabbids, and it's clearly made by and it's not made by Nintendo. It's done by Ubisoft, so it's it's a Mario game made by Mario fans. So when Peach enters the story, she's at first just the friendly NPC, but when she enters the party as a um, playable character, because it's a shooting game, what happens is she floats in after Mario and the others have been frozen by the boss of the level, and she floats in on her umbrella and smiles prettily, and then pulls out a giant shotgun from her behind her back and shoots the boss and saves the heroes. Nice. Oh, All right, that's so fun. We have to wrap up. Sorry. That's Sorry. fine. No, no. Uh, before we go, I just want to put on, I think, a prime example of another issue with the male gaze is just so it helps prop up the uh, patriarchy, I think, is mm. what we basically established here. But a perfect example is of the three trilogies aimed at women based on young adult or fan fiction, I should say, Fifty Shades and Twilight. The first movies were both imp- uh, almost entirely done by women. Both of them made immense amount of money. Both of them broke records. And then when they continued on with the trilogy, almost everyone from that first movie was gone. And became almost it, entirely male-oriented. Which is a shame because the uh, the first uh, Fifty Shades movie, the the screenwriter was one of the screenwriters from Venom. Right, the screenplay for uh, Fifty Shades, Kelly Marcel, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, edited by three women. Twilight, uh, directed by Catherine Hardwick, written by Melissa Rosenberg, again edited by a woman, Nancy Richardson. Well, well, yeah, but they, then they started. Then they were ta- like made real money, and then you can't just leave women in charge. Right, that, that, but that's I mean, what I'm saying that, is the fact that like, what if they continued movies, to make money? <laughs> I, I want because with the next episode we're going to talk about the female gaze, and I think somewhat and this is a movie. These were movies written by and for and aimed almost exclusively at women. And then they made money, and then they were told, no, we'll take over from here. Oh, yes, we'll, we'll come in now. Mm, right. Yeah, mm. <laughs> but oh, I, I figured that's just a nice little end point to pivot to the ne- for the next episode. That's all the time we have for now. Um, Molly, thank you for joining us. Kara, thank you for joining us. And mm-hmm. Oh, oh, really? Really? Thanks. Well, I'm fuck s- you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean. Thank you for <laughs> joining us, You're coming on no matter what, unless... Thank you for joining us, Jeremiah. You're welcome. Don't forget to check out the other podcasts here at the Phantominals. You can check in with Kylie, Gretchen, and Julia over the Phantominalists. Or maybe dive into the Game of Thrones books with Kylie and Julia over the Unabashed Book Snobbery. Of course, there's always Dan and Bridget discussing the mysterious and frustrating craft of writing over at Right to Survive. Uh, but wait, there's more. Corey there? and Elizabeth talk about queer women in media and queer women fandom over at Ladies First. 
But don't forget about our latest podcast, That's Haram, with Koi and Sahir, where they talk about issues and representation for Muslims in both media and fandom. So, that's all the time for now. Thank you for joining us. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.